0: O Lord, you have searched me and known me and are, are acquainted with all my ways. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? To heaven? You are there. In Sheol? You are there. At the farthest limits of the sea and at your right hand held fast. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Search me, O God, and know my heart; test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God. Well, any of you who've flown since 9/11 know that security in airports is much tighter than it's ever been in this country. And it is in other airports in the world. We were in Europe just a few years ago and ending our vacation in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, When we arrived at the airport, you could tell immediately that security was heightened. There were several armed personnel carriers parked right in front of the airport. Uh, When Gail and I got inside, we went through the familiar questioning. Who packed these bags? Have they been out of your sight? Uh, Has anyone given you anything to carry on the plane for them? When those questions were asked and appropriate answers given, we were then taken through the X-ray part. As we got through there, we saw that there were two young German officers who were patting down everybody who went through. There's a very attractive young woman officer, and the women were lining up there, and a very handsome young man, and the men were lining up there. Well, all except Gail. She got in the line with me. And so we got right up to the man, and when it was Gail's turn to step forward, this young man went (laughs) and pointed her the other way, and Gail's response was, well, it was worth a try. (laughs) If you're going to be patted down, pick the one you'd rather have, huh? Well, this psalm, scholars say, makes great use of a concept one has In the Greek language, in Greek, there is a word omni, O-M-N-I, and any time you see that attached to an English word, it means all, all. So the first verses of this psalm say that God is omniscient, coming from the same root, the latter part of the word, is our word science, and it means all-knowing. The second part is about God's being omnipresent. God is everywhere, in all places. And the third portion I read with you is that God is omnificent, coming from the Latin ficare, which means to make, to make something, about God's having made every person on the planet. Okay? And then that fourth section reverts to the first and says that, God, I know you search me and know me and so on. Well, please do search me and know me. So let's take a look. Number one, first thing, God is omniscient. God knows everything. God knows everything. Now, that can be reassuring or that can be threatening. You see, God knows everything. God sees everything. The past few weeks, several people have said to me, I don't think it's right, all those people from abroad buying up American properties here. I don't think that's right. Well, you need to travel a little more in the rest of the world and see how Americans have been doing that to others for years and years. When our American dollar was so strong, we bought up other companies. Now, of course, the dollar is weaker, and some of these other currencies are much stronger. Uh, A few years ago, Gil and I could go to Europe, and, and you could buy a euro for 90 cents. Today, a euro is $1. sixty, which means that almost everything is double in price for us. But if you have a pocket full of euros, you can buy a lot of dollars. So a Belgian company could come into St. Louis and spend 51 billion U.S. dollars for the largest brewery in our country. Uh, a group from Abu Dhabi came into New York City and bought the Chrysler Building, one of the real landmarks of that city, uh, just three weeks ago. When we see the wealth in these other countries And see how it's being used uh, We can be very critical There was an article in the Wall Street Journal A couple of weeks ago About the people who live in Abu Dhabi There are only four and a half million Not very many But it is the fifth largest market For Rolls Royces in the world It's the fifth largest market for Ferraris In the world Now most of them have their Rolls And their Ferraris They decided to take a close look at license plates. How about vanity license plates? So they decided to have a big auction in a luxurious hotel. Uh, they checked the credit ratings of all those who wanted to participate, of course, and those who had good credit were given one of the little paddles so that you could raise it and bid. The number one was very popular. People started bidding for this license plate that had nothing on it except one. You know what it went for? $14 million dollars 14 million US dollars Uh, number two wasn't quite as popular number three not quite as popular seven was big nine was big and finally they got all the way to 29 And there was a teenage boy there with his paddle he started bidding for 29 nobody quite sure 29 what he wanted he was only 15 he can't drive for three more years but he kept raising his paddle and raising his paddle. For 29, he paid 530,000 U.S. dollars to have 29 on the license plate on his car when he gets one in three years. But you see, we Americans have been doing that sort of thing to the rest of the world a long time. Uh, those of you who enjoy Sports Illustrated magazine know that the biggest issue of the year is not the beginning of football season our March Madness it's the swimsuit issue right it's the swimsuit issue that's the one they sell the most of and Forbes magazines biggest issues are not the ones about which American companies you ought to be buying or not buying the biggest issue of the year for Forbes is the United States wealthiest people and the wealthiest people in the world And we've been so pleased that Bill Gates has been number one and Warren Buffett's been number two. Americans right on the top, number one and number two. Well, you and I look at those sorts of things and say $14 million for a license plate. The amount of money that Bill Gates or Warren Buffett has. Wow, that's amazing. Cannot imagine that. But you see, this psalm is about everybody. God not only knows what's in the heart of one of his children in Abu Dhabi or Omaha, Nebraska, or Seattle, Washington. But he knows in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He knows our hearts. He knows everything. And that can be reassuring. That can be threatening. Number two, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. This poet says he's everywhere. You can't get away. Um, You go to heaven, that's where God is. But you go to Sheol, the place where people are buried, In the dampness and darkness of the tomb, there's God. If you get up on the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, remember they thought they were surrounded by water, it means if you go north, south, east, or west, as far as you can go until you are stopped by water, there he is. You just can't get away from God. Back in 1938, a German novelist named Thomas Mann had decided that it was not safe to stay in Germany. That since 1934, when Adolf Hitler had come to power and the Nazis had taken over, that it was no longer safe. And the coming of Kristallnacht another reason things convinced him that was the case. And so he managed to get himself and his little daughter out of Germany, and they came to the United States at the end of the war. Thomas Mann decided to write instead of a novel a book called the spirit of nobility the spirit of nobility we've all been gifted and because we have been gifted much is expected of us after 9-11 a composer, Mr. Goodman decided that he was going to write uh, about that horrible day And he was going to call his work The Spirit of Nobility. He didn't live long enough to get it finished. And Thomas Mann's daughter, who knew a disciple of her father's writing named uh, Robert Riemann, asked him if he would pick up her father's work from 1945 and give it a new try. And so he's written a new book called The Spirit of Nobility and guess what his conclusion is now this is not a theologian you understand this is not someone who teaches in a seminary but after taking a long look at all that Thomas Mann had written in 1945 and having lived with it now for more than 60 years uh, Robert Riemann has written that human beings are a combination of two things we are subject of study in a biology classroom, a zoology classroom Uh, we are mammals We are born and we live long or short and we die but we are also mr. Riemann says something else there is a spirit to human beings not found in any other part of the animal kingdom as far as we know at this point now for a long time we differentiated ourselves from the others by saying we're the tool makers we humans know how to make tools but now of course Jane Goodall and others have shown that chimpanzees do in fact know how to make tools. So we started looking, well, what else differentiates us? And finally it was decided what our scholars call self-transcendence. For as we can tell, human beings are the only species that can move itself out beyond itself and be critical of self. In the sense of not only saying, I know I like bananas, but asking, I wonder why I like bananas so well. Why I like bananas more than rutabagas. But it also means we can project ourselves into the future. And to project oneself into the future has a tendency to make one anxious about the future. And yet our all-important book says, Be not anxious. God knows what you need. Live today. This is God's gift to you. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in this day. Be not anxious. Not one sparrow falls to the ground, but that my Father knows and He cares. Even if you're at an age where you're losing your hair, He knows every morning when you get up how many you got left. Be not anxious. Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote his huge work, The Nature and Destiny of Man. It's a big, fat book in which he said we are like children's seesaw on one end of our seesaw we are that mammal we are that created thing that is born and lives its life and dies and those who think they're only that have a tendency to eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you die but we also are created in the image of God self transcendence ability to go outside oneself and look back and be critical of self ability to project oneself into the future ability to entrust oneself to the creator of heaven and earth who so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life he is omnipresent. he's everywhere everywhere I told you that my old mentor Dr. Charles Allen in Houston said to me one time you know people say to you It's what you know that makes a difference. I tell you, it's not so important what you know as who you know. But there's something even more important, and that is, it's not who you know. It's who knows you. Who knows you? This book says, the one who blasted billions of stars into the heavens knows you. He knows all about you. He's everywhere, everywhere, and he cares, genuinely cares, extends his love, wants good to come to you. Will you trust that God wants good to come to you? Number three, one writer of the Bible says God is a potter and we are the clay. Genesis chapter two in that older creation story, it says God went out on the plane one morning when dew had settled in the dust and he scooped up the moist earth and sort of flopped it down on the potter's wheel. And in Hebrew, it's like a potter treadling one of those ancient wheels, making it go round and round. God molded and fashioned till he had something exactly the way he wanted. And then he took a big breath. And the little man jumped down off the wheel. And he called him from the Adama, Adam. And he created the mother and named her Mother, Eve, the mother of all things. This wonderful little creature. God is the potter and we are the clay. But this poet says God is the knitter and we are the yarn. God is the knitter. Even in our mother's womb, before ever we drew our first breath, God was putting us together. And we are wonderfully made made God does good work when God got his work done he looked at this thing he had made male and female and said this is really good those early days of the week Sunday, Monday Tuesday, well that was good that was good, that was good he got people made and said this is the, old, the, young, the more recent story, Genesis 1 well that was very good what i've done today very good i've been to three big conferences this year i'm really tired of going to methodist conferences now saturday morning i got to bed at 2:30 in the morning i had to get up at 6 30 to go to a breakfast to welcome the returning bishop of oklahoma to our area um, so i've been through two weeks of general conference i've been through a week of annual conference now i've been through a week of jurisdictional conference electing bishops and I'm really tired of going to annual conferences. I've seen more bishops than one should see in a lifetime. I've had the privilege, again, of helping elect uh, some bishops. And by the way, if you haven't heard yet, those of you who knew and loved Annabelle Dorf so very much, who was our receptionist for 15 years, her son Jim was elected a bishop this week. And Jim becomes bishop now of San Antonio and the Rio Grande Conference area, uh, both southwest Texas and Rio Grande. And, uh, and I got to be a part of that as I got to be a part four years ago of electing uh, Bishop Finus Quetchville, son Charles, uh, to be a bishop, and he's now serving with such distinction in Arkansas. Uh, three weeks ago, I was reading in our, our United Methodist Porter what one of our bishops had said, Bishop Scott Jones. Bishop Jones is Bishop of Kansas. There are two conferences there, East Kansas, East Kansas, West, and he presides over both of them. Bishop Jones had been back in his home area in Dallas preaching the ordination service at the annual conference. And in his sermon to these women and men being ordained, he had several quotations that were were reprinted in the United Methodist Reporter. One quotation said, don't waste my time if you have no vision. He was saying to people about to be ordained. To hear their bishops say, take thou authority to preach the word of God and maintain order within the body of believers. Don't waste my time if you have no vision. Another, he quoted Jack London. Jack London at an ordination service, this adventurer who would spend so much of his life up in Alaska and the great northern country would write about uh, sled dogs and so on, and great uh, animals of the north. Yeah, Jack London, he said one time, I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather that my spark would burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. I'd rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. The function of humans is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Some years ago, a sports writer read that quote to Kenny Stabler. You remember him? It was called The Snake. Kenny The Snake Stabler played at the University of Alabama and went on to be the quarterback, a Super Bowl quarterback uh, for the Oakland Raiders, and they asked Kenny the Snake, what do you think about Jack London's quotation? What does that mean to you? And he smiled and said, throw deep. Tell him to run as fast as he can, and you throw it as far as you can, and see if he can catch it. Wonderfully made. Number four. This poem begins, Lord, you you know me, uh, you know everything, and then here it ends by saying, "Please do search me and know me. If there's anything wicked in me, please take it away. Lead me in paths." Last year, Gail and I were in England again and uh, she had been looking on the internet to see if she could find things we had not seen in London on prior trips. And one of the things she had written down she wanted to see was John Keats home. So when we were in London, we decided that we were going to see John Keats home one afternoon. It's not really easy to get to. Uh, It's not in the immediate downtown, you have to go way out into one of the suburbs. So we rode the underground way out there. And then one either has to take a taxi or walk, and we decided to walk. Uh, We had the address and and had a little map, and so we walked to John Keats' home. Let me remind you a little bit about Keats if you've forgotten. He was born in 1795, oldest uh, child in the family. He and a brother would survive to adulthood. Uh, Things seemed to be going pretty well for the Keats family until the father was thrown from a horse and died in that accident. John was only eight. Uh, His mother rebounded to that horrible death by marrying a man she didn't know very well, a marriage that didn't last very long. Uh, She left her two boys with the grandparents and she went on a fling that lasted several years. There are all kinds of stories about what she might have been doing and with whom during that time, but she was not in John's life. And then suddenly she reappeared, dying of tuberculosis. John was 14. When he held his mother's hand, and saw her cough up that red, red blood and die. He went on to school, even considered being a surgeon, went into the medical school of his time, decided that wasn't for him, that writing was for him, and was really getting underway with his writing when his brother was found to have tuberculosis. And when John saw that bright red blood coughed up, he knew that it was really bad, and his brother was going to die, and he stayed right there with him until the brother did die. John was 23. He moved into this home in the northern part of London. Uh, Gail and I were the only two there that afternoon, except for the people who worked there, so we could spend as long as we liked in each one of the rooms, and finally went out into the backyard, and to sit there, almost 200 years now since John sat there and one afternoon had a coughing fit and he coughed and coughed up bright red blood and knew he was going to die and he was going to die soon he'd had two books published and neither one had done well had not sold well had not been received well by the critics and he sat in that backyard and smelled the flowers that were blooming around the yard and the garden and he wrote five Poems that would have him declared after his death that he was one of England's greatest Ode to a nightingale owed on a Grecian urn owed to melancholy and so on you remember them. his doctor said maybe you do better in a drier climate it's so wet, so cold here in London why don't you try Italy and so he left everybody that he knew and loved and, and went to Italy to see if he could get better was there only a few months he died in Rome. never knew that the world had received his poetry well. He believed, though, in one of the letters contained there, that he was divinely gifted. He believed God had given him a gift and prayed that one day it would be received as a gift of God. And in one of his last letters, he also asked, is there life after death? his answer was there must be surely God did not create us to